Amateurs talk about strategy. Professionals talk about logistics. And, you know, that says it all for me. You can have the world's greatest strategy in the world, but when you land on Omaha Beach in D-Day, unless the bullets are there to meet the guns, you know, all, all that other crap is immaterial. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, F- Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Today, I'm talking with and learning from Tom Peters. So as I work through my list of amazing business books that impacted my life, Search of Excellence, 40 years ago, October 1982, this book was published. And absolutely great to have Tom on to chat a little bit about that book and what his key takeaway was from that. And he tells the story about meeting John Young, president at HP, and how management by walking about had a profound impact on him and took him back to his service days in the US Navy. So we chat a bit about that. We chat about his new book, The Compact Guide to Excellence, which is out now, as came out on the 1st of November. So we pick a couple of quotes and I get Tom to reminisce about some of those quotes. So we talk about women, why businesses need more women leaders. We talk about, I ask him his view on working from home and is it actually possible in his opinion to build an excellent business or an excellent culture? So I get Tom's response to that. And then we go and sort of, what is the job of a leader in business? And the job of a leader, according to Tom, is to develop people. So we get some book recommendations from Tom and then we're diving into his commandments for remote leadership that he developed during COVID. And we wrap up with how as leaders, if we develop our people, we'll develop our businesses and we'll make money. So great conversation with Tom. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It It's so nice to meet your heroes and not be disappointed. Great fun conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. I'm Tom Peters. Everybody thinks that I was born, wrote in search of excellence, and that was the end of life, uh, which isn't quite true. I grew up near the United States Naval Academy, six miles away from Annapolis, Maryland. I spent time in the Navy. I was a combat engineer in the Navy and I only in Vietnam. And I only point that out because my first commanding officer in Vietnam was the most influential person on my life, including my dad. And from there, I went to business school and because basically I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do with my life and business schools were kind of getting cool at the time. And after business school, I went to work. Well, I went to work in the White House for a couple of years. And then I came back and I got a PhD in business. And then I went to work for the now deeply and appropriately discredited McKinsey and Company. 
in what I would like to think were glory days rather than what's going on right now with Purdue Pharma and so on. And, and at McKinsey, which is really, you know, really why we're here, the, they got a new managing director when I was there. And he said, we developed these incredibly brilliant, fantastic, profitable strategies for our clients. And then they can't get implemented. What's going on? I want to look at the implementation thing. And that, and I had just gotten my PhD in organizational behavior from McKinsey a, a year later. I took a leave of absence. Uh, and, and so I headed this project that was fundamentally focused on implementation, focused on the organizational stuff, focused on the people stuff. And then God intervened. He decided that he was going to give my co-author, Bob Waterman, and I perfect timing. I mean, literally, the book appeared, I think, the week after President Reagan announced that unemployment had hit 10%. And I said to somebody, in about two weeks from, in two weeks' time, the business books have gone from the back of the bookstores to the front of the big, the bookstores. And so, and then I, and, and, you know, my mom was a garrulous person and she taught me to be a speaker, I guess. And so, uh, I'm a pretty good speaker and I just kept running around the world to the tune of eventually 2,700 speeches in 63 countries, but always talking about the same damn thing. And, and that thing was sure strategy is important. Sure goals are important. But it's the people, stupid. It's the people. It's the people. It's the people. Uh, and 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 the part that is my great irritation in life is that there are a lot of things you should do. I mean, I argue that the number one capital investment the company makes is in fact in training. But the real point is this is wonderful, wonderful little study. A teacher stands in the door of her or his classroom as the kids enter. And as they enter, he simply says, you know, he's got a smile on his face or her face. Uh, good morning. Good to see you, Tom. Good to see you, Jane. Uh, I'm glad that, you know, Audrey, sounds like that cold of yours is getting better. No conversation, <laughs> no more than a sentence or two. And then they go in. Uh, well, that apparently trivial act, and, you know, there's enough research to sink at least a half a ship on this, that trivial act leads to a 25% reduction in disciplinary problems, measurable, and a 20%, I'm not sure what the measures were, but they looked legit, 20% higher academic engagement. And so all you had to do was to treat this kid like a, one of, a fellow human being about whom you cared. And, that, and the same thing is, you know, it's true in any organization, true in any organization in the world, true in life, but you know, that, that's, that I've spent my life trying to tell leaders to stand in the door in the morning and, and smile and well, say, glad to see you, Tom. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's, there's a thing which is true, which you would think if you were an educator, you might have some curiosity around the thing you've decided to make your profession. And yet either you know it or you're not curious. And if you do know it, why aren't you doing it? I'm, I'm just sort of fascinated by these Things people know are true because something very similar uh, is a book called Why We Buy. And the author there says, if somebody, I can't remember off the top of my head, but in, in the book, he has somebody standing at the front of a shop saying hello as you come in. And it demonstrably increased the, the amount of money that people spend in the shop. And, and so you go, hang on, well, why wouldn't everybody do that then? 
Uh, and so it just, I'm fascinated by the, you know, when somebody does a study, the most disappointing thing about doing a study must be when everyone goes yee-haw for about 10 minutes. And then it's like, as if you never did it. Yeah. But I, th- but I think it's that mindset. It's the, I'll stick with the MBAs as opposed to the docs. It's you're supposed to do sophisticated things that require at least uh, college junior level math. The notion that the outcome in your organization would be more affected by saying good morning than it would be by a business plan that could only be understood by Nobel laureates in mathematics. And it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right to the business person. And, and then there's all the, the, you know, language stuff, which just, you know, makes me want to barf, which, you know, we need, we need to be tough minded, you know, let's get to the point. Uh, don't wait. You know, it's just, it's that sort of thing, which is not, not human and enterprise is you know i my little one liner one pager is business is people serving people serving people leaders serving frontline employees serving customers it's all about that simple chain that's the beginning the middle and the end and it's wonderful wonderful the uh feisty former governor of texas ann richards I was giving a speech somewhere. I think it was in Texas. It was a day-long seminar, and Governor Richards uh, spoke at lunchtime. And she said, so here's the thing. You have a very important conference that you're trying to get to. Your plane has a mechanical before you leave. Your whole world's been blown up by that fact. There are now 25 people standing in line at a desk uh, waiting to get their flights changed and so on. And you're grumbling, you're growling, you're tapping your feet. And she said, finally, you get to the front of the line. She said, here's what should go through your mind. There are seven, there are eight as of last week. There are seven billion human beings on earth. And that woman who's about ready to talk to you is the only one of seven billion human, human beings who can get you what you want? Treat her accordingly, or him, as the case may be. And I always just it was a you know it, it, well it's silly, it's, but it's not silly. It's this is the person who can make my life better. In a way, that's all the educator was doing. And as you were telling the story, I was thinking my kids go to a little primary school in Salisbury in England called Salisbury Cathedral School, and Clive Marriott, who's the headmaster, stands. Salisbury Cathedral is one of the most extraordinary gifts <laughs> from God to humanity. It's a fabulous place, but and the school, the cathedral school, the headmaster there is a guy called Clive Marriott, and he stands on the doorstep every morning, rain or shine, it was raining this morning, and he stands on the doorsteps and he greets every parent and every child in exactly the way that you're describing. Yeah. Just it's one of the things I love about the school. Yeah, no, absolutely. By, by, by the way, not that it's terribly relevant to this conversation, uh, <laughs> my wife had, she's passed away, an English mother. So I am, I am married to the consummate Anglophile. <laughs> I did something. Now, here, here we go. I'm looking for credibility with you. You are speaking to someone who in his CV has service on Her Majesty's ship Tiger in the Royal Navy. I was a U.S. Navy midshipman, and I didn't apply for this thing, but about 10 British midshipmen came over and served on U.S. ships each summer. 
and 10 Americans went over and served on Royal Navy ships. And I didn't apply for it, but somebody said, (laughs) I got a call from the guy who ran my, you know, was in charge of my Navy course. And he he said, "Um, on, you know, the 17th of June, you've got to report to the American embassy in London so they can help you with your assignment and get you on the HMS Tiger. And I mean, that was, you know, that was my holy shit moment for my life. But anyway, it was just, it was the most wonderful, wonderful, incredible experience. Because I, I grew up near the Naval Academy. I was a Navy kind of person. And to be in Lord Nelson's Navy, <laughs> then, which really was the icing on the cake, for heaven's sakes, my bunkmate, who went on to be a vice admiral in the uh, Royal Navy's rep- NATO representative or something like that, my bunkmate, whose name was Michael Gretton's father, was Sir Peter Gretton, and Sir Peter became Sir Peter because he was a destroyer driver in the North Atlantic who sunk more U-boats than any other Royal Navy commanding officer. And that was, you know, I, I said to Michael, I said, let me touch the hem. I feel my hands are shaking about this. But so I, I and I love it when it, whenever, and, you know, because the militaries are, were smaller, are smaller number and so on. I love it. Whenever I speak in the UK, I always ask, I said, can we have a show of hands? How many of you have served in the Royal Navy? And I put my own hand. It's an unfair <laughs> thing to do, but it's always a, a great way to start. And what was HMS Tiger? HMS Tiger was a battle cruiser. The interesting thing was this was 1965, and the British were really still just becoming, breaking out of the lack of funds, et cetera, following the the nightmare of World War II. And there was enough money to send the fleet around the British Isles uh, you know, just to, 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 well, I mean, just to, it was, you know, the world was ter- returning to normality. As I said, my mother yeah. had, my wife had an, a British mother and, you know, until the late fifties, her mother would bring food stuff with her when she came over to the UK. You know, this, I, I remember when I got there, in fact, it was fascinating. In I think it was 65. They in in London, they were just beginning the first serious cleaning of you know buildings of buildings that had been covered with soot. And there was no there were there were no there's no extra money. There was no money for frivolity. It took it took literally, you know, you think 65, which is you'd say of 20 years is a long time, but it was only 20 years after World War II. And so the the real recovery to normalcy had, you know, had not had not uh, been at all completed. Yeah, still in austerity. Well, we're going back there. <laughs> that's, that's where that's where we're headed. Uh, certainly in the UK. Well, welcome to the club. <laughs> Here we are, forty years after you wrote "In Search of Excellence," and we were chatting before we started recording about um, probably the first proper book on culture i mean not that it was not that there weren't other books on culture but this was rather than an academic study this was your sort of real life examination of how people were managing to execute their strategies and you'd finished a phd so you are you doctor tom peters you just decided not to use the doctor no i i have decided not to use the doctor 
my thesis advisor at Stanford was the academics academic. And as far as he was concerned, those of us who had PhDs were real doctors and medical doctors were just mechanics. <laughs> he was, he was in, alas, he died young. He was in intensive care at the Stanford hospital for a long, long period of time. And I would come over to visit him and, you know, a doctor would come into the room and he would always say, you know, the doctor's name is Dr. Smith. He would say, Dr. Smith, I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Peters. As far as he was concerned, we were the real ones. <laughs> he was just a, just a mechanic. Uh, but in search of excellence is a, is a little bit more academic than most people give it credit for. The first two or three chapters were about theory. And there were people who had focused on the people stuff, focused on the culture stuff, even though that were the, 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 ter the term. And we use it in the book. Simple translation of the word culture. And I, and I heard this a hundred times when we were doing the original research. It's how we do things around here, you know, and, and which I thought was a wonderful, wonderful way to say it. You don't have to use a sexy academic word like culture. It's how we do things around here. Well, I don't think this is a digression. There is relative to my professional life. There is a singular moment by which I mean our that in retrospect, literally transformed everything. So we're starting on this research that we had no idea whether there'd be a book or not. It was just the research we were asked to do. And we were looking at companies that had pretty good reputations. And my co-author, the late Bob Waterman, and I worked for McKinsey in San Francisco. And down the road, 30 miles, was an energetic young or young plus company that had a fabulous reputation and its name happened to be Hewlett Packard. This was HP when it had just passed the $1 billion in revenue. So it was hardly a small company, but it was no GM or it was no Sears Roebuck or, or whatever those others were. So we called to see if we could have an interview with the president of HP and Bob and I worked in the city of San Francisco on the 50th floor of the Bank of America Tower. And I said, if you want to understand the top of the Bank of America Tower, you'd be invited in to have a cup of tea and it would be on a tea service that had come directly from Buckingham Palace. <laughs> uh, so, so that's what we're used to. So we come down to HP and we get to the front desk, not, not a tiny company, a billion bucks back when a billion bucks was real money get to the front desk and I was the youngest, Bob was older. So I went up to the person at the front desk and I said, we have a meeting with, with uh, the president. We have a meeting with John Young. And in the B of A world, 17 minutes later, an executive assistant to an executive assistant to the president would have come out to usher us into the pre-waiting room. I said, we have a meeting with John Young. Honest to God, I am telling you the truth. Two minutes later, this guy pops out of a door and he sticks out his hand. He said, I'm John Young. Good to see you guys. The president of Hewlett Packard then takes us in, takes us inside. These were engineering spaces. And he takes us into the president's office, which happens to be an eight foot by eight foot cubicle with walls that, you know, come up to your chin or something like that. 
And so we said, this is a little bit different than what we're used to. Now, during our conversation, and this was the, in retrospect, transformational moment, he introduced us to MBWA, which was managing by wandering around. And you know, when I say it was transformative, I'll, sk- I'll keep going a little bit and then come back to the transformative. So we had our conversation. We learned about MBWA and, and Mr. Young looked at Bob and I, he said, he said come on, you guys want to take a walk around the engineering spaces. So we walk out of John's cubicle and wander around. And, uh, you know, he knows two thirds of the, you know, the average person sitting in a cubicle, first of all, had a big computer screen in those days. This was 1979, uh, 28-year-old engineer or something like that. He knew half of them by name. Uh, he had a couple of short conversations with them, but they were conversations of the sort that you and I would have, not that the president would have with a 26-year-old newbie. And then over in the corner, there's this old fart who's working with an engineer. And, and, and Young said to us, he said, ah, that's, this is cool. Come on over. I want to introduce you to somebody. And so old fart working with 25-year-old engineers, Mr. Young texts us over and he said, Bob and Tom, I'd like you to meet Bill Hewlett. It was, excuse me, but Bill Hewlett was, I don't know what he was then. He was probably 60, but he was engaged like a kid with this 25-year-old engineer talking about issues. But that was not the world of the Bank of America. That was not the world of Chase Manhattan. That was not the world of the Ford Motor Company uh, that we knew. What I learned from MBWA is that leadership is an intimate act. It is about human interaction whether it's the founder of the company uh, or whomever and the 26-year-old engineer. It's about, you know, I, I, I said earlier, people serving, people serving, people. It's, 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 it's a human act. You know, we can, use, we can call, we call MBWA and all that stuff. We can call it culture today. I did that. Others did it. But it's, it's, it's just, it's the humanity of the organization. That was honest to God, that, that hour in Hewlett-Packard, in retrospect, obviously, wouldn't have said so at the time, changed my life more than anything other than popping out of the birth canal in 1942. Because I was going to say, when you look back, what things really, for you, stand the test of time? And that that sounds like that was the transformational moment. Because some of the companies that you... Adult professional moment in the what I've done with my life since then, the the transformational moment which was a moment that lasted a year but the transformational year-long moment was uh, my parents didn't have any money the navy paid my way through college i went into the navy i was a civil engineer there's a group of combat engineering group in the u.s navy called the cbs i went into the cbs the vietnam war started at exactly that moment the next thing i knew i was standing on the beach or getting off the plane in vietnam this is not a war story I'm telling. What I am telling you is the commanding officer of my 900-person naval mobile construction battalion, the commanding officer of that battalion was the most influential human being in my life other than my mother. He was even more influential than my father. His name was, was uh, Richard E. Anderson, Dick Anderson. And to the MBWA point, though, uh, we were in a war zone. We were building things for people who needed things built for them, roads, bridges, you know, gun emplacement, whatever it happened to be. And we had to get it done on time. And we had crappy equipment. And we had crappy material. And Captain Anderson 
you know, was more of the job done. But I really don't think I'm exaggerating when I say, I really am choosing my words carefully here. He loved every one of the 800 sailors, sailors in that battalion, which didn't mean he wasn't tough-minded, which didn't mean he didn't want the job. But you knew whether you were a young, in American language term, we call it E1, the lowest level enlisted person who had just been drafted, whether you were that person, whether you were Tom Peters, who was the juniorest of junior officers with his hot shit Cornell engineering degree and no experience of any use whatsoever or whatever. But in re- retrospect, boy, that the culture of that battalion was to die for. It was just unbelievable. And it was driven by was driven by his love of the sailors. And, and it really was. And, you know, thinking of you and your accent. <laughs> Lord Nelson was beloved by his sailors. I mean, Lord Nelson was no pussycat, to put it mildly, but he loved his sailors. His sailors loved him. The one, the one I really, well, uh, I will, I could go on forever about this, and you and I don't have forever, but <laughs> that magical moment of the time I spent with Captain Anderson and the magical moment of John Young and Hewlett Packard, those were the life changers. Uh, we can you, call it not, for culture. We can call it the way we do things around here. We can call it social psychology instead of more math and finance. Uh, but, you know, that's that's the story. And I find it as hard to sell today as it was years and years ago. People still want to work on that hard stuff. They still want to get the plan right. You know, there's a the General Omar Bradley was the American commander of troops at D-Day. And my favorite quote of all is a Bradley quote. And the Bradley quote is amateurs talk about strategy, professionals talk about logistics. And, you know, that says it all for me. You can have the world's greatest strategy in the world, but when you land on Omaha Beach in D-Day, unless the bullets are there to meet the guns, you know, all, all that other crap is immaterial. Why is it still such a hard sell? Like, is there not enough? I mean, or maybe I was uh, so I was looking at some data the other day, and it said of the people who survive their first heart attack. For argument's sake, it's fifty fifty. I think it used to be just over fifty percent, and maybe it's just under fifty percent. But certainly in the U.S., about half the people who have a heart attack present dead in hospital. Of the other half, only ten percent changed their diet to avoid subsequent heart disease. So, you know, even with a life-changing event, only 10% of people can change. So is that, is it something, is, is thinking the soft stuff is important? Is it, does it go against evolution and that's why it's hard? Or is there, have you got another, another reason, another rationale? Well, I think in the world of leadership, you're socialized. You know, you have these language, well, you know, He's tough-minded. He cuts to the chase, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Those are the terms, and those are kind of warlike. There's an interesting, wonderful thing. There's a book written by two researcher MDs called Compassionomics, and it's the power of compassion, you know, in healing. And at any rate, they this magnificent thing that they talked about, which I love, Charles Darwin never said survival of the fittest. That was another anthropologist by the name of Spencer who said that. Darwin said precisely the opposite. 
He said survival by the healthiest communities. And the healthiest Uh communities bring the largest number of kids to life and so on. And so we got it 180.0 degrees wrong. What does Darwin teach us? That you got to be the toughest son of a bitch in the book, you know? And what Darwin really said is you've got to have the greatest community who support one another. And that's the survival route. But so I, so I think it's deep. You know, I, I remember hearing this silly little story from somebody, I don't know, it was Warren Bennis, one of the all-time leadership gurus or who it was from. So Tom Peters becomes a manager. He's appointed a manager. And Tom Peters disappears into his office. And he never comes out on the shop floor. And somebody, they, they did all the research and so on. Tom Peters didn't come out on the shop floor because Tom had watched bosses on his way up. And he understood that bosses stayed in their office. And he didn't know what the hell he was doing, but he felt his role in life. I've got to tell you what, it just brings to life this, other, this story. That, and it's, oh my God. I did a public television show and a big segment of one of them focused on a woman by the name of Pat Carrigan. And Pat was the first woman to head a General Motors parts plant. And so my little crew and I went to visit Ms. Carrigan in the, in the Midwest in her plant. So the TV guys and me and so on and so on arrive. And in the plant, it's a unionized operation, the United Auto Workers, the UAW. And it's a big plant with a couple thousand workers. And so the UAW leader, the UAW boss, obviously has his own office. And so early on in this day that we arrived, uh, with my director, I went down to the office where the UAW guy was, and we sat down and had a chat. And I don't remember what the context was. He said, he said, let me tell you, he said, I have been in this plant. I've been the leader of the union in this plant for 14 years. He said, Pat Carrigan arrived, the new plant manager, and, you know, probably at nine o'clock or something like that. And a half an hour later, I hear a knock on my door and I go to the door and it's the new plant manager, Pat Carrigan, who came to say hello. He said, here's what I'm, and I hope that everybody's listening to this when I say it. He said, I'm tearing up, you know, and this is 35 years afterwards. He said, that was the first time in my 25 years in the plant that the plant manager had come down to my office to say hello. <laughs> I was always summoned to his lordship's lair. But I mean, you know, and, and that's in that, you know, that category of you can't make this stuff up. But isn't that an amazing, but I, the, and my problem was I wasn't surprised. What's wrong that somebody who takes over a plant and a plant with a strong union, which the UAW was, wouldn't your first instinct be? really want to go down and meet this guy. And wouldn't your first instinct be to go to his office rather than summon him and say, I'm the new boss. You've got 17 seconds. Get the hell into my office. I want to introduce myself. I mean, I mean, but Jesus, first time in whatever I just said to you, 15, 20 years that, that, that the plant manager had come to the union boss's cubicle for God's sakes. <laughs> I just, but it, 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 it brings to mind a great quote somebody put up on a they were doing a talk and she put up this quote and it was the, this the slide said why is the world so f- full of shit leaders 
And she went on to say, because on the way through, they didn't have any good role models. So they, you know, there they are as an employee, their leader shit, they get promoted. They can't help but just replicate the shit that they saw. And you said earlier, you thought training was the best capital investment any business could make. Yeah, I, the right kind of training, obviously. You're going to get me off on one of my favorite tangents or <laughs> topics. The role of a leader is to develop people. The leader is not supposed to be the best engineer. The leader is supposed to be the person who takes that group of 15 engineers and allows them to flourish and learn. I had this, another one of those magical moments in life. I was giving a speech in Mumbai and sitting 20 feet away from me or what have you in the first row was a gentleman in a full military uniform with several stars on his lapel, who was the general who was the the number one person in the Indian army, which I've learned subsequently is the largest army in the world in terms of numbers of bodies. And we got on this topic of training and promoting and so on. And I'm digressing a little bit here, but he said, he said, I've got Joe Smith and Tom Peters competing for a promotion to general, which is obviously a big deal. He said, there is only one thing I, and he said it this way. I think I'm being pretty darn accurate. There's only one thing I pay attention to. And that is I scour the earth of the company to find people who worked for Tom on the way up. And what I want to know is the degree to which their two years with Tom led to their growth, transformed their life, because Tom's record is the number of people he developed, not the amount of money he made in the last 90 days. And I just love that that was the, you know, that, that was the measure. And I've you know, heard the same story from people in the past, the measure. How did you do it developing people? And so, you know, tie it back to the point about training being number one, uh, our role in life is to help people grow. That's what we do. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's an American New York Times columnist by the name of David Brooks, and he, he wrote an article in which he compared what he called uh, resume virtues and eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are how many degrees did you get? How many times were you promoted? What's on your, you know, what's your net worth? And the eulogy virtues, obviously, are what do they say about you at your funeral? And at your funeral, they talk about what kind of a human being was he? It's obvious it's the end of your nose, but I really loved it when he said that. So what I want to tell all the people who are who are listening to us is, you know, the, the term EQ, the emotional quotient, I don't care whether you like the technology of that or not, but in, in what it stands for, hire people who get off on people, hire people, people, uh, develop people, people wonder. There's this guy who runs a biotech company successfully. And he said, it was an article I read about him. He said, we have only one secret to success. We only hire nice people. <laughs> here's the, here's the thing that's really the wonderful catch. He said, some of the degrees that people have to have in biotech are such that you wouldn't even understand what the name of the degree was. But he said, I made this discovery that no matter how apparently obscure the degree is, there are a lot of people who have it. Hire the nice ones. And, you know, and, and then the, the, and the, and the deal is then you're the big dude and I'm the guy who's looking for a job and you're interviewing me 
And I just had the most incredible technical background and you're drooling. You are so desperate to have me on the staff. Well, not quite that simple. I finish being interviewed by you and I then have six or seven 15 minute interviews afterwards with randomly selected people. Could be a junior person in finance, could be a senior person in research, whatever, whatever, whatever. And each of those six or seven people has veto authority. They can say, nope, didn't like the cut of the jib, not uh-huh. gonna hire him, can't hire him. And so even though the boss is drooling to get the guy, if you know Mary Jones, the middle level person in finance, says, you know, this is not our kind of person, then Tom's had it. But you know, that that sort of focus on on what matters is, is, is so bloody uncommon and it's so incredibly simple and straightforward. Developing people, that's your that's your legacy for God's sake. Period. When I did did a lot of running around and speaking, I used PowerPoint slides. And my my favorite one of all the millions was uh, I had one and it had a tombstone on it. And on the to- the tombstone said twenty six million four hundred twenty three thousand eight hundred ninety two dollars and eight cents. Joe's net worth the day at the close of the market on the day he died. And my <laughs> comment is nobody's ever had a tombstone with their net worth on it. <laughs> um, look, I've got another. I've got a quote from uh, from your your new book. We've mentioned the fact that I'm in the UK. So my the quote that caught my eye because I know it's another topic of interest for you. Margaret Thatcher said, "If you want something said, ask a man. If you want something done, ask a woman." And it a bit like sort of culture or hiring nice people. Somehow we seem to be still underrepresenting at least 50% of the world's population in the workforce. And and even more so in the case of leadership, when the data says, if you've got a business full of women run by women, it's more successful. Yeah, not the most important, the most important sentence out of your mouth. And that was the first one, but the, the last sentence there, it, this is not, this is cool. Let's do it for reasons of equity. All those things are wonderful. It is that the research is hard-nosed. There is a lot of it. Women are, on average, better leaders. And now, people who are listening to us, I, I, I don't want you to play games with me. There are women who are leaders who are jerks, and there are men who are leaders who are saints. But we're talking about the bell-shaped curve, the normal distribution. On average, women are significantly better measured leaders than men. Uh, and I think it's to a significant extent the things that we've been talking about. And why? I mean, McKinsey did a study, which was just incredibly powerful in that regard. And it was the performance of publicly traded companies with 50% of board members who were women. And the difference between that group and others was just off the charts, dramatically different. I don't have any good answers as to as to why the obvious isn't turned into action on a regular basis. You know, we're still we'd still live in a boy's world. Uh, I don't know whether the whether you guys are worse than we are or whether we're worse than you. Not that it really matters, but but it is just it's just stupidity. It's stupidity because, and again, a lot of it. This is there's there's a book. Woman's name is she's a professor by the name of Luann Brigandine Brizendine. She wrote a book called The Female Brain and talked about differences. And the one little thing that I remember, and this gets back to Darwin, survival of the fittest versus survival of the best community. 
the one little piece of data that I remember is that by day three of your life, day three, baby girls are making three times more eye contact with their fellow human beings than baby boys. I mean, that community sense, that engagement is, it's hardwired. It's genetically hardwired. I mean, my comment is, makes sense to me. What were boys supposed to do? We were supposed to get a lot of sleep, get up early in the morning, throw spears at animals, bring some food (laughs) home, go to bed, and then do it all over again the next day. And women, meanwhile, were to guard the community, develop the community, you know, produce physiologically the babies and so on. And we were spear tossers. And, uh, you know, and we're still paying more attention to spear tossing, even though the research tells us that people who spend more time looking people in the eye are going to have better operations. And you, one of one of the quotes in the book that I liked was was one of yours, where there's no business excellence without community excellence. Think deeply about this. I mean, you've talked about managing by walking about, but where else does that, is that, is that the, you know, people can't love customers unless they love their company first? Is that what you had in mind there? Is that what you're thinking? Was the business is not an independent entity that hires people, serves customers, makes money, or doesn't make money. The business is an integral part of its community. The communities from which its employees come. Uh, okay, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And has it, and- which its customers live. It's not the business and other. It is, they are part of it. I mean, the, the, you know, the, the simple fact of it is that most of us work for a business of some sort or other, small, medium, or large. Uh, the business is the community. It's part of the community. Community service is not something you do because it's a nice nonprofit gesture. It's what you do because you are an integral part of the community. If you are interwoven with your community, I mean, the, then the bottom line is, the bottom line, bottom line is, it will undoubtedly over the mid to long term lead to greater profitability. But it's, it's just this independent, this business being this, I mean, it's, it's the, 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 day, the day from hell, if you're an American and maybe if you're anybody, was the day in September of 1970 when the late Nobel laureate in economics, Milton Friedman, wrote an article in the New York Times in which he said, business has no social responsibility. Uh, and life is all about the quarterly earnings. Forget that social crap. Here's the number I hate, and I have no idea what whether the UK number would be different or not. I suspect it would be directionally the same at least. When Friedman made his comment in 1970, 50% of corporate profits went to shareholders, executives, and so on, and 50% of corporate profits went to employees, research and development, and so on. That's 1970. A study was made in 2014 on that same, to examine that same premise, in 2014, which is 44 years after Friedman's article, and I can't even say this without, I mean, you're not looking, I mean, you and I are, but our colleagues are not going to be looking me in the eye when, when they see me almost tear up about this. 44 years later, 91% of profits went to share share buybacks, executives, stockholders, and so on. 9% went to employees, R&D, and so on. 
I mean, that's just, it's a, it's, it's a, you know, it was a study again done by my buddies at McKinsey. So for all their faults, quantitatively, they get stuff right. I trust the numbers from 50, 50 to 91, nine. And you wonder why the hell there's unrest on the streets and incredible inequality. Uh, you know, there's a, there's, there's a, there should be a special place in hell for Mr. Friedman. The, um, you said invest in community. So what's your, do you have a, do you have a, a view on working from home versus working in the office? Is it possible to build a great culture remotely? Do you think? The jury by definition is still out, but my answer is yes. And it's not the answer I would have given you two years ago uh, or three years ago when the pandemic started. For example, in ye olde days, if I wrote a book, I would have perhaps physically gone into a studio and we would have had this conversation with my microphone and your microphone. There can, I, I, Zooming, doing podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. What I have learned is that there can be as much humanity, as much intimacy, as much serious interaction relative to what you and I are doing now I mean, I still believe in the value of getting together. I believe that idea, you know, it's, it's, not a, it's not a one or the other, but I really believe that you can have an intimate, caring, people-centric organization where 98% of what you do is done remotely. Very good. Thank you. Tom, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? Well, so many things on that list. I wish I had paid a lot more attention to what you and I are talking about when I was 25, that I had not been so focused on quote unquote succeeding and a lot more focused on the people who surrounded me. I talk like a religious minister or something today, perhaps on those dimensions, <laughs> but that ain't the way I started. You know, I had a mother who drove me for the highest grades in the class, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think my humanity was sadly lacking on any number of dimensions. Uh, and I owe it all. The fact that it's changed, I owe it all to John Young in that day when we learned about MBWA. It was obviously not, not quite that simple. Uh, I feel like in my, this is a very personal comment. I feel that I didn't claw my way up any ladder, but I just don't feel that I paid enough attention to my peers and my colleagues and to being helpful and paid a little bit too much attention to Tom. And like David Brooks, I'm, you know, I just had my 80th birthday. I'm right up there on the eulogy virtue moment. You know, I <laughs> statistically speaking, uh, I'm worried about you. Know, I, I, I've said this, by the way, with the Brooks thing, eulogy virtues versus, uh, you know, resume virtues. My, my engineer's translation of that is I've said in my talks and so on. So at six o'clock, let's be back in the office. We'll zoom later from this. It's six o'clock in the evening. You're about ready to leave the office. What is your eulogy virtue score for the day? What grade would you give yourself on eulogy virtues in these last nine or 10 hours you were at work? And I you know, almost mean it quantitatively, but I certainly in the sense of, you know, grades that are a b c d e or something how'd you how'd you do today how'd you do today relative to your fellow human beings and you know i think it builds better obviously organizations but i think it also means you can live a little bit better with yourself 
Okay. Very good. That's a good... People should, wherever they are, whatever they're doing whilst listening to this, think if it's the morning, how were they yesterday? And if it's the evening, what's their score for today? That'd be a useful thing to hit pause and think on. And uh, people should people should go to Amazon and all good booksellers and get a copy of Compact Guide to Excellence by Tom Peters. What else have you been reading or what else do you think people should pick up and read? Go back and read In Search of Excellence 40 years later. I tend to have a tendency toward uh, depression. The most recent book that I've given away 25 copies of is called I won't get this exactly right, but I'll be close enough. Uh, It's called, So This Is How They Tell Me the World Ends. And it is a very scientific study of the future of cyber warfare. And I'm, I'm afraid that those are the kinds of books that I read these days. I read books about what's going on in the world. I try to keep my keep slightly up on the technology side. Uh, I read a lot about artificial intelligence, even though I'm you know, no, no longer capable of doing that kind of coding or what have you. So uh, you might you might try that. So this is how they tell me the world ends. I want to I want to understand where where we are, what's going on, what we're surrounded by. Of your 20 books, do you have your own personal favorite? Not really. <laughs> they were all whatever I thought was most important on my mind at the time i am i have a co-author with this new book her name is nancy green she is on everybody's list as one of the top 100 designers uh, of anything in the world not just books but a designer and the power of this book i've been i've been writing about and talking about design and the power of design for 25 years. But the power of this book is its look, feel, taste, touch, and smell as much as it is the words that are inside. And so I think maybe I've always liked the last book best. But in this instance, this is a real, real shift of gears for me. Not many words. A lot of ways we hope. I mean, as you know, as 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 you saw, it's the, the when you op- when you open it up, there will be a quote on one side and a little comment about it on the other side. Not many words on a page, and it's meant to induce thoughtfulness around these ideas. So this this is my favorite. It's the first. It's the first book I've written, co-written in this instance that I'm really in love with, and I'm in love with it because of what Nancy did with it. You know, these are things that I'd written about before, but she really, she really made it. She made it in, well, the big review group uh, in the U.S. is called Kirkus that does the big reviews. And uh, they they called it in, in something like an Ogier dart with very important content or something like that. And uh, I never thought a book of mine would be called an Ogier dart. <laughs> very good. I know you... Uh... Are you still angry and frustrated enough to write another book? Nah. <laughs> Nobody believes me when I say that, and I do hope it's true. But, uh, you know, I, everybody, I, not everybody, I have been besieged to uh, to write a memoir, and I'm having trouble with that. 
because I feel that memoir and egocentrism are part of the same sentence. So I'm, I'm not, I may do it, uh, but I kind of doubt it. I've done what I can do. Okay. Fabulous. Is there one other thing in the book that we haven't spoken about that you've got one last comment on? Well, did I do what I planned to do? Yeah. When the pandemic started and I was sitting around in my office doing nothing and watching my wife, who was a tapestry artist, among many other things, making masks and so on, I said to myself, you know, you're supposed to be a person that had some significance and you're sitting on your ass. And so my good colleague, Shelly, I spoke to and I said, Shelly, this is a very arrogant thing to do, but call people we've done podcasts with and so on and tell them that I would like to, I'd like to talk about leadership in the, in the times of a pandemic. And, you know, there were some people interested and I ended doing about 55 podcasts on the topic, but along the way, that's all preview. I developed what I called my COVID-19 seven leadership commandments. And they were as follows. Be kind, be caring, be patient, be forgiving, be present, be positive, walk in the other person's shoes. I'm not a very religious person. So if it sounds that way, that's not where it came from. But when I talk about it, I've said, you know, be kind, be caring, and so on. I said, for those of you who find that too complicated, I'm going to summarize it for you in four words. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> Thoughtfulness is a wonderful way to make an excellent organization under any circumstances. Thoughtfulness and caring in the midst of this pandemic are, to use the American phrase, part of the ball game. They are the story. Uh, so I just, I'm not worried about your eulogy virtues and whether you go to heaven or whether you go to hell, but for the sake of the world, for the sake of yourself, for the sake of your families, organizations, our communities, helping other people thrive, that's the only thing that matters in the end. You know, that's the only thing in, that matters in the end is uh, helping people grow, thrive, have better lives. And then for those of us who do have MBAs, it turns out that that also over the long term is the best way to be profitable. I, Since I'm an engineer, I always have to have an equation and I developed a sophisticated equation. It was called K equals R equals P. Kindness equals repeat business equals profits. And, you know, that's a, I, I don't, I don't mean to take it something like kindness and translate it into profitability, but it's a fact that as, as a very conservative commenter said, when he reviewed my, when he did a review of my third book, Thriving on Chaos, he said, what Tom did was show us that the right thing to do is also the profitable thing to do. And this is a Wall Street Journal guy. So this was not coming from the far left, to put it mildly. Tom. Brilliant. I think that's a fabulous place to finish. It takes us full circle from, you know, when you were saying at the beginning, a leader's job is to grow people and and then that's how we grow our companies. Yeah. It's been it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for giving me your time and coming on to chat. 
Well, for heaven's sakes, th thanks for being interested. Thanks for the conversation. I have had a uh, absolutely lovely hour on every dimension from the personal to the professional. So it's been great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.